Alrighty, so I am back. This is the lecture from May 15th for pathopharmacology, and the first segment is cellular adaptation, injury, and death. So fun. So as we know, cells experience a lot of stress kind of in everyday living, and they, um, they can process the stress in a number of ways. So they could have adaptive changes that would allow them to maintain function, or there could be a failure to maintain function that which would result in injury, maladaptive changes, and even cell death. So there are a couple examples of the cellular adaptation that occurs, um, which allows that stress tissue to maintain function and continue to survive. So we have atrophy, which is a decrease in cell size. And you can think of a muscle atrophying and decreasing in size when someone is immobile or maybe in outer space or something. Um, we also have hypertrophy, which is an increase in size. So I always think of athletes like trying to build muscle and doing hypertrophy workouts. <laughs> You also have hyperplasia, which is an increase in the number of cells. So, of course, hyper is an increase, and plasia means growth, so that's an easy way to remember it. We also have metaplasia, in which the cell type is replaced by another adult cell type. So it's basically just a change in the type of cell. And finally, the last type is dysplasia, which is kind of abnormal cells. So that would be a different abnormal growth. There are also maladaptive changes that can occur. So we could have intracellular accumulation. So this in could include the buildup of things like abnormal proteins, calcium salts, pigments, or unused elements like lipids or glycogen. And as far as pigments, I always think of a patient with elevated bilirubin that builds up in the skin cells and causes jaundice. So they kind of turn that yellowish color. Um, when we have uh, the accumulation of calcium salts, it leads to pathologic calcification. So there are two types of this. We have dystrophic calcification, which would occur in injured tissue. So you'd see that in atherosclerosis, um, heart valve damage, or tubercular tissue. We also have metastatic calcification. And so this occurs in metastatic disease, so usually cancer. Um, and that would be the calcification of normal previously healthy tissue so hypercalcemia and that leads to that buildup so we have dystrophic and injured tissue and metastatic and normal tissue there are a lot of causes of cell injury they range from physical like mechanical force heat and cold to extreme temperature electricity we could also have radiation chemical agents biologic agents or nutrient imbalances another option is free radical damage um, hypoxia or impaired calcium homeostasis. And those are some of the ways that cells, um, that injury damages cells. So those are the mechanisms of cell injury. So we have free radical, hypoxic, and impaired calcium homeostasis. One more time. So really delving into free radical damage. So what are free radicals? Effectively, they're molecules that have an unpaired electron in the outer electron shell. So this is, causes them to be unstable and highly reactive. Um, the goal for free radicals is going to be to take an electron from another cell, so that is going to cause cellular damage, so they're very unstable. Free radicals are actually a normal part of human functioning. They're going to be expected to occur through regular metabolism in the body, um, but, we do, but we typically are able to manage them through antioxidants that would limit the effects of them. If you have injury and a lot of formation of free radicals, the body's going to be unable to manage that with the antioxidants that exist. 
So I'll delve into this a little more now. So like I said, free radicals are expected to occur with metabolism, but they increase with events like ischemia, inflammation, reperfusion injuries that follow ischemia. An example of this would be a st- like the placement of a stent following a myocardial infarction, um, toxic agents, oxygen to- toxicity, and radiation. The most concerning forms of free radicals are going to be those that are derived from oxygen, also known as reactive oxygen species. This is because oxygen has two unpaired electrons that exist in separate orbitals of the outer shell, so the structure makes it possible for oxygen to cause more free radicals. Other examples are hydrogen peroxide and hydroxyl radical. So if we're thinking of free radicals as causing damage by kind of uptaking and stealing electrons from healthy atoms and cells, we could think of antioxidants as electron donors, so neutralizing those free radicals. Since we know that we have the free radicals have the ability to react with normal cells and damage them, it can also cause a chain reaction called oxidative stress. So this is when free radicals are reacting with normal cell components, damaging them and turning them into even more free radicals. Um, this is a chain reaction and generally occurs when the body is unable to keep up with the formation of these free radicals. So the condition occurs when the generation of reactive oxygen species exceeds the ability for the body to neutralize them. So some of the ways that free radicals damage cells, um, they cause damage to proteins, DNA, and the enzyme used, used within the cell. They also cause a DNA damage to both um, DNA in the, the nucleus and also in the mitochondria. They can also cause lipid peroxidation and injury to the cell membrane, since it's taking electrons from the lipids and damaging this membrane. This also occurs in the mitochondrial membrane. So what are antioxidants, these electron donors that really kind of help out in the body by neutralizing free radicals? They are natural and synthetic molecules that inhibit the activity of reactive oxygen species. So these are enzymes and vitamins like glutathione, vitamin C, and vitamin E. There used to be kind of this line of thinking that supplementing with antioxidants could promote health, but some large recent clinical trials did not detect any benefit and suggested that excess supplementation could actually be harmful. So our second mechanism of damage is hypoxic cellular injury. Um, from a lack of blood flow and oxygen delivery. So when you have this lack of good perfusion, aerobic metabolism is going to stop since we know that it requires constant oxygen. So ATP is not getting produced at the rate that the cell needs. This also means the sodium-potassium pump is unable to run. So it's not pumping that sodium out. This, requ- um, this results in the cell swelling up in wa- with water. We also have, since we have aerobic metabolism, lactic acid is going to be produced and that would damage the cell membranes, the intracellular structures, and the DNA. So if you have hypoxic cellular injury, you're looking for cell swelling and eventual lysis and also damage to the cell parts from that acid. Our third mechanism of cellular injury is calcium damage. So the cell usually maintains low intracellular levels of calcium. But when the damage occurs from either ischemia or toxins or other ways, it can cause excess intracellular calcium. 
So calcium actually acts as a second messenger inside the cell, similarly to cyclic AMP. So when you have excess intracellular calcium, it's going to be inappropriately turning on intracellular enzymes. So this could cause damage to the cell membrane, the cytoskeleton, and deplete ATP. It could also result in more calcium gates in the cell membrane opening, causing a calcium cascade. So some ways that this occurs when you have that ischemia, it'll result in not only excess calcium entering the cell, but also the stored calcium being released from the mitochondria in the endoplasmic reticulum. So this will then activate the enzymes, like we said, since it acts like a second messenger. So the digestive enzymes inside the cell are going to be activated. So we'll have phospholipases damaging the cell membrane, proteases damaging proteins, and ATPase breaking down ATP. So there are a couple pathways that cell injury can take. You could have reversible injury, cell recovery, and an eventual return to normal function. You could also have apoptosis and a programmed cell removal, or you could have cell death and necrosis, which is obviously the least desirable outcome since it does um, trigger the inflammatory process. So just one more review on the mechanisms of cellular injury, because it's a really important concept. So we could have free radical formation in which you're oxidizing all those cell structures and DNA and creating the oxidation kind of cascade almost. Um, we also have hypoxia and ischemia in which the mitochondria receives no oxygen and produces no ATP. So there's no energy for the sodium potassium pump. In that case, we'd see that influx of sodium and water, the cell will swell, will have dilation of the endoplasmic reticulum, increased membrane permeability, decreased mitochondrial function. So the cell is swelling. We also have anaerobic respiration, so which is using the glycogen and decreasing the cellular pH through the production of that lactic acid as a byproduct. We'll also have decreased protein synthesis since we have no energy source, ribosomal detachment, and lipid deposition. So lots of bad things happening there, but the two big ones are the damage from that lactic acid in the cell and the swelling and lysis of the cell from that influx of water and sodium. And the third pathway is that increased intracellular calcium, which is going to turn on all the digestive enzymes and eat the cell from the inside out. <laughs> So a little more on reversible cell injuries. The key factor here is that the nucleus is not damaged. So when we see a cellular injury that's reversible, the cell membrane is going to be compromised. So this could occur through direct injury, inflammation, ischemia, any of those. You're gonna have an influx of water through that compromised cell membrane, which result in a plasma membrane bleb. So there will be kind of an outpouching of the membrane in the cell because of that increased intracellular volume from the influx of fluid. Additionally, with that influx of fluid, the organelles are going to swell. So we'll have the structure of the endoplasmic reticulum breaking down, ribosomes will be dispersed, the mitochondria will swell, and we'll also have fatty accumulations deposited. The cellular structure will also generally be compromised since the cytoskeleton will collapse. So despite all of that damage, it is still reversible because the DNA and nucleus is intact. We also have non-reversible cellular injury. So we'll start out with what you'd see in necrosis. So this involves damage to the nucleus. So there's damage to the DNA. And once again, it could be ischemic, it could be toxic or mechanical injury as well. So you're gonna see the cell rupture and the contents of the cell are going to spill into the extracellular space, which will then activate the inflammatory mediators because they will know that 
those contents do not belong in that extracellular space, we'll also see a pycnotic nucleus, which means that it's shrunken, and carolysis, which is degradation of the nucleus in general. So since we know there are those two types of cell death, a review on necrotic cell death, which is the first kind, it's an unregulated death and it, it's caused by injury to the cell. You'll see the cell swell and rupture and cause inflammation. On the other hand, we have programmed cell death, which is known as apoptosis. This is a normal, proper function of the body that removes cells that are being replaced or have worn out. It can also remove unwanted tissue and is completely normal. Like I said, there is no inflammatory process. So the general process of this, it's going to occur in cells that are damaged or worn out. So this is going to happen when you see um, caspases, I don't know how to say that, caspases, which are enzymes inside the cell that begin this process. You also have the breakdown of cellular proteins and DNA, and all of this occurs within the cell. It's very compact, so there's no inflammatory process, and the debris will eventually be engulfed by white blood cells. So we have the interior, interior of the cell slowly degrading. It'll then coagulate and break into small pieces before being engulfed by macrophages. So as you can see, it's kind of a controlled, contained process. And those macrophages will be able to consume the fine, the little particles of the cell without inflammation. There are a few things that would prompt apoptosis to occur. We could have just normal wearing out the cell a loss of survival signals from other cells, which could be caused by tissue size, um, mitochondrial damage inside the cell from either an ischemic or toxic injury, and also DNA damage to gene P53. So the first of those, the cell wearing out, how does the cell know when it's worn out and it's time to induce apoptosis? So every time DNA replicates, we have this little piece on the end of each chromosome called the telomere. And effectively, with each replication, the length of the telomere decreases. And so as it gets really short, the cell knows that it's been living for kind of its max lifespan. And so apoptosis will result. You could also have the loss of survival signals. Um, all cells have signals that will allow communication between each other to share kind of when things are going wrong, like they're damaged or old or too large. So eventually they'll be unable to receive those signals via their receptors, and when that doesn't function, it will trigger apoptosis. We also have that mitochondrial damage, which could be from ischemia or toxins. Because of this, the cell has no energy source, since we know that anaerobic respiration is not enough to power the cell, and apoptosis will begin. Finally, we have that gene P53. P53 is the best known gene that is responsible for repairing DNA damage. So it is also able to initiate apoptosis when it's not functioning. So it can either restore DNA or prompt apoptosis if it is unable to repair the DNA. So I'm gonna end this section with a little more about necrosis and gangrene. So necrosis, as we know, is that cell death and degradation that is going to result in inflammation. So there are a few directions this can take. The cells could undergo liquefaction, in which some cells die, but the enzymes are not destroyed. It results in a liquid viscous mass inside the body. You could also have coagulation, in which the cell develops acidosis and denatures the enzymatic and structural proteins of the cell. Other options are infarction and caseous necrosis. 
So in all of these processes, cell contents are released and inflammation will result. The first one, liquefaction, like we said, some cells die, but enzymes are not destroyed. So you'll have a liquid viscous mass. In coagulation necrosis, we have that acidosis that develops and the proteins denature caused by ischemia and the cells are there, but not alive. So if you're looking at an organ, you'll see kind of a section with pale appearance. Caseous necrosis is named that based on casein, the protein in milk, because it has a curdled milk appearance. And you'll find this in tubercular granulomas. And finally, the kind of clinical application of this is going to be gangrene, which is a large area of necrotic tissue. So there are a few different types. You could have dry gangrene, which occurs as a result of a lack of arterial blood supply. In this situation, the venous flow is still intact. So fluid is being carried out of the tissue, but it's not entering the tissue. So the tissue tends to coagulate, which is why it becomes dry. In wet gangrene, the arterial blood flow is intact, but the venous flow is not. So fluid is still pouring into this tissue. However, it's not being removed. So the tissue tends to liquefy and infection is highly likely due to that moist environment. The last kind is gas gangrene in which you have a usually clostridium infection that produces toxins and hydrogen sulfide bubbles. So when you have that, you'll kind of see crepitus and you'll see blisters and the production of a lot of air. All right, starting back up with the second part of this lecture, um, it's going to be on stress and adaptation. So it's a little context. Um, what is homeostasis? So while it seems like the body is kind of staying constant, it's actually in a constant state of adaptation with the goal of maintaining equilibrium. So it's not a static state. It's constantly evaluating, responding to all parts of the body to ensure it's kind of a good condition for the cells in the body to live in. So some areas that this would include would be water balance, weight, blood glucose, and temperature. So we also have this concept called general adaptation syndrome, also called the generalized stress response. So it's effectively the hormonal response to stress. So we have cortisol that comes from the adrenal cortex, antidiuretic hormone from the posterior pituitary gland, um, sympathetic nervous system activation, which would cause the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine from the adrenal medulla, and also the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway that's activated in the general adaptation syndrome. Um, and this comes from the kidney and adrenal cortex. So a general idea of the general adaptation response, um, we're going to have these stressors that are changing the internal environment of the body. So we'll have signs and symptoms of that change. We'll also have the general adaptation response, which helps maintain normal function in spite of the stressor. So that will also cause the signs and symptoms of the general adaptation response. So based on this, you can do a pretty good job at predicting the signs and symptoms that you would see as a result of certain situations and stressors. So starting off with cortisol, it is known as the stress hormone. So as you could maybe guess, it helps regulate the stress response. Its effective function is to divert metabolism away from building tissue like anabolism to 
to um, supplying energy for dealing with the stress. So breaking down tissue catabolism. So this is going to cause signs and symptoms of chronic stress. So you would see the breakdown of glycogen to glucose, um, fat in the body to free fatty acids and glycerol, protein to amino acids, and other things. When you have someone with chronic stress, this chronically elevated cortisol level would result in consistent alterations in um, glucose, fat, and protein metabolism. It also diverts production of immune cells, so those raw materials are available to be used for energy to maintain the stress. So some things that you'll see as a result of cortisol release, you'll see increased blood glucose because it's breaking down that glycogen. You're going to see stronger, a stronger sympathetic system effect on heart rate. So it's increasing the ability of your sympathetic system to affect heart rate. You'll also see decreased non-essential energy using activities like hormone production, such as metabolic rate and reproductive functions that are going to decrease bone formation, red and white blood cell production, as well. So the immune system is going to become depressed. So once again, you're going to see cortisol breaking things down, freeing up that energy. So blood glucose is released. Um, not as much energy is going to metabolic rate and reproductive functions. Also digestion goes down. Um, your body's going to be breaking down bones, muscles, and not diverting resources to make red and white blood cells. You're losing that reproductive, reproductive function. You're depressing your immune system. All of those things. The second component is antidiuretic hormone, also called vasopressin. This hormone causes vasoconstriction and also makes the kidneys reabsorb water from the urine to the blood. So a person who is stressed and under the influence of antidiuretic hormone, kind of in those high volumes, is going to be cool and pale. So their skin is going to be cool and you'll have pallor since the blood is being diverted to the core with that vasoconstriction. We also have that reabsorption of water in the kidneys from the urine filtrate. So that's going to ensure that you have more blood volume available so that you can divert to the brain and heart. So you're going to have decreased urine volume in someone who's stressed chronically. We also have the sympathetic nervous system, which is also called the fight or flight system. So this is the rapid response to trauma and emergencies. So you're gonna see the release of epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, and norepinephrine, noradrenaline, both released. So these are going to attach to the adrenergic receptors on cells. So the general process Sympathetic nervous system activates to pain, fear, hypotension, trauma, emergency, any of those things, and that'll be detected by the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus will sense this and activate the sympathetic nervous system to encourage neuron, and it'll travel through neurons and encourage the adrenal medulla to produce epinephrine that will be re released into the blood. So it's going to have an adrenergic effect, stimulating. So the symptoms that you'll see as a result of this, um, blood pressure is going to be increased. You're going to reduce blood flow to the skin, gut, and kidneys. So once again, the skin is becoming pale. Urine production is being decreased since you're having less blood flow to the kidneys. Um, GI activity is decreasing. So we see that stimulation of the heart. So you'll have increased heart rate, increased heart strength, and the vasoconstriction of blood vessels in the skin, gut, and kidneys. So that will increase blood pressure. So some nursing findings like we were talking about, you'll have cool skin, pallor, decreased urine production, and decreased bowel sounds.
Another hormone system is the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. So this is going to be activated by both the sympathetic nervous system and also decreased blood flow to the kidneys. So the general process, the kidneys are going to release renin. Renin will bind with angiotensinogen, and then, which is then cleaved to form angiotensin 1, which is a weak vasoconstrictor. Then angiotensin 1 will travel to the lungs and meet up with ACE, which is the angio, angiotensin converting enzyme. This will convert the angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, which is a strong vasoconstrictor. It's also going to stimulate the adrenal cortex and cause the release of aldosterone. When aldosterone is released, the kidneys are going to start reabsorbing sodium and water and secreting potassium. So this is once again an attempt to increase blood volume. It's also going to decrease urine output and um, result in decreased potassium since you're reabsorbing that sodium and water. So there are a lot of impacts that stress has on the body, and we know that stress also impacts the immune system. So it's going to be decreasing immune cell production decreasing thymus activity, and changing the kind of immune cells produced. So as we saw with cortisol, energy is being diverted to essential things, immediate things to fight off the stress. So this decreased immune function is going to lead to increased illness. You actually have a positive feedback loop in the immune system response to stress between the central nervous system, hormones, neurotransmitters, immune cells, and inflammatory mediators, they're just going to keep going around and kind of ramping up the response. The positive thing is in physiological stress, this, these stress-induced changes in body functions are actually detected by the body's normal regulatory sensors. So the body, as we saw through cortisol, the RAA pathway, and other things, the body alters function to restore normal balance. So when normal balance is restored and the need is met, a negative feedback loop stops the reaction. So the example, some event happens that changes your body function. Say you see a bear. The event is detected by the hypothalamus, which activates a stress response. So you're running from that bear. You have all this extra energy. The body's freed up. Your blood pressure is pumping. You're just, you're ready to go. You're ready to fight. Eventually, you'll be okay. That threat will be gone. So it's going to return to a normal balance and the hypothalamus will turn off the response. So that we have this intact negative feedback loop with physiological stress. On the other hand, when you have psychosocial stress, it also directly impacts the central nervous system. And you'll have a stress response that occurs even when the body's internal sensors have not detected an imbalance. So all of these changes will happen. Your blood pressure will be raised. Your skin is going to be less perfused, less um, perfusion to the gut, all these things, reabsorbing water, the stress response. And if, say, you were just evicted from your home, those stress responses are going to do nothing for your problem. They're not going to help you whatsoever. So you are losing the element of that negative feedback loop. The receptors are not going to detect a change and a return to normal because of these stress things, so the, the situation's only going to continue. The hormones aren't going to meet your psychosocial needs. So when you're looking at acute stress and the acute activation of the sympathetic nervous system, um, you might see damage to certain organs, like with this rapid vasoconstriction. So you could see that decreased perfusion to the skin, gut, and kidneys that can lead to damage. 
And long-term chronic stress also has a huge impact on the body. Like I said, psychosocial stress is not going to be resolved by these, um, these hormonal responses, so they're just going to continue. And you're going to have a really high level of sympathetic activity. If we're looking at cortisol alone, you're going to have increased blood glucose, reduced immune response, increased risk of infection because of that reduced immune response, and also delayed wound healing. So this shows that there needs to kind of be an increased adaptive capacity to respond more effectively to both physical stress and psychosocial stress, and a lot of factors contribute. One way to manage this is through various relaxation responses, which decrease sympathetic nervous system activity and induce muscle relaxation. This could be things like transcendental meditation, progressive relaxation, guided imagery, music therapy, massage therapy, or biofeedback. So in general, the point of this lecture is also to indicate that there are a lot of factors that contribute to stress and it can be really damaging for the body, especially chronically. So it's really important to take care of yourself and find ways to reduce stress in your own life.